Well, on this Reformation Sunday, we're coming uh, to our final sermon in this series, uh, Truths for Tough Times. And this is actually part two of a sermon that I began last week um, using Romans uh, chapter 828 as our anchor passage. So today I need to return to our topic of God's providence. So that's where we're going. And again, I began this last Sunday. If you missed it, it's, uh, I would encourage you to go back and hear that as this sermon's um, kind of built on top of that one. What I want to do today is I want to address just a couple of the questions that flow out of um, an understanding of the sovereignty of God and and, and providence is uh, not exactly the same thing as the sovereignty of God, but it's, uh, it's definitely very similar, and it's built on the, the sovereignty of God. Um, if, if you might say, well, what's the difference? Well, um, providence, it, it, it takes God's sovereignty, which emphasizes power, the power of God to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, but it adds to that these, these divine attributes of God's wisdom, his wisdom that guides and directs his sovereign power. It places the emphasis on, on God's fatherly care, especially with respect uh, to the care of his own people. But there are some complexities um, to this truth, and, and that these also need to be addressed uh, so that it doesn't, this teaching about providence doesn't lend itself to some really serious misunderstanding. So we, we do need to uh, uh, cover some of these questions that arise. We'll be beginning with our anchor verse in Romans 8.28, but like last time, I'll be turning to multiple uh, scripture passages to help us uh, just continue to penetrate the, the truths um, uh, surrounding the providence of God. So with that in mind, would you stand uh, for the hearing of the word of God? Again, this is Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Would you bow your heads with me? God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will and strengthened in our inner being for the sake of Jesus Christ and for your glory. Amen. You may be seated. The first critical question um, that we need to address, this may actually be the more important of the, the two critical questions that we'll be looking at, is if God is sovereign over all things, Okay, God knows the end from the beginning. It's going to happen. The future is going to unpack just as God sees it. If all this is the case, then why should I try to exert influence on changing anything? It, it, it backs up on the question, do our choices, are they, are they really free? Do we have um, uh, real agency? Do our choices make any difference? Do they matter? Well, part of the logical conclusion from Romans 8.28, okay, the verse we just read, uh, and the key passage there, for all things work for the good of those who love God, well, is that God is, in fact, sovereign over all things, from the great events down to the details of our lives. Um, 
R.C. Sproul has this memorable uh, saying about this when he writes, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God's will will be fulfilled. Okay. That's the degree of God's rule, his governance over uh, the affairs of, of this world. This understanding of God's sovereignty and providence could, however, be viewed and misunderstood as a kind of fate or a determinism, okay? Fate or determinism. The idea of fate is, you know, all things are just going to work out uh, the way fate determines it to go. What will be, will be. And this has the effect of taking away a sense of agency, a sense that our choices really matter. I, I remember um, uh, John Schindeldecker, I think he did it as one of his sermons um, here at ECC when he described uh, driving along a narrow road, you know, on this, this windy road on a hillside, perhaps a mountainside. And his friend, the driver, um, uh, he was a Muslim, and in, in Islam, there is a very strong idea of, of determinism that what Allah decrees, this will be. And John describes how he was getting a little nervous <laughs> about the speed <laughs> at which this man was traveling on these windy roads and turns. And, um, and he said something, and the man just said, if it's my time, if, if it, Allah has decreed for me you know, to die, then there's nothing I can do. And if he hasn't, then we will be just fine. <laughs> I don't think this really helped John <laughs> very much, but... But see, you can see this, this idea of fate or determinism can lead to a passivity. Do you see this? Where, you know, how fast you drive, it doesn't really matter. And so this is not unlike questions that Christians ask when studying these topics of God's sovereignty and providence. If God knows the future, if he's ordained, what will come to pass? What good are our decisions? What, what good are, you know, how important really are our prayers? Should we, if God knows who's going to be safe, should we, you know, have then does this really uh, make our activity in evangelism just mere illusion? Like it's not really necessary. And this is where Christian theologians do not like using the term determinism. You don't, you, you won't hear um, many, I mean, good Christian theologians using this word determinism to describe the providence of God. They don't like that term. Why? Well, because even as we affirm that God ordains and is sovereign over all things that come to pass, the Bible is also very clear. So now we have to, the Bible gives us a certain way of thinking. The Bible is very clear that we have agency, that our choices matter, that our actions have meaning. So to that end, I just want to look at a couple of examples, uh, beginning with the example of Jonah. All right, so I'm just going to read just the introduction to um, the book of Jonah, where we read this. This sets up the whole narrative concerning uh, Joseph's call to go to Nineveh. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of God. 
Now, this is a very interesting call. As we work through this book of Jonah, we know, based on how it turns out, it is God's will for these wicked Assyrians, these inhabitants of the city of Nineveh, to receive a message of judgment that will in turn um, spur them on towards um, uh, repentance of their evil, the, the confession and, the, and their being humbled before God's, um, God's power. And we know that this will lead ultimately to God withholding the uh, judgment that had been declared against the city. But here's what's interesting. Notice, so God has determined a certain end. But he's also, um, by the way providence works, it, it's not like he just, you know, he's not like Thanos. You know, he just snaps his fingers and, and all of a sudden the Ninevites come to their senses and decide to follow God. That's not how he does it. He doesn't send these kind of spiritual lightning bolts to change their hearts. He has ordained that a man, an Israelite prophet, has to travel a long distance with, the, with whatever hardships are entailed in order to preach a message that they will hear with their ears and whatever circumstances they find themselves in. And so what we see is that the way God's providence works, often the way his sovereignty works, is he's working through means. He's working through secondary instruments so that God's not just ordaining the ends, but the means. And this means that how is he going to save the nations? How is he going to make disciples of all peoples and tribes and tongues? Well, he does so through the prayers of his people. He does so through the active, intentional, bold, courageous declaration of the good news of Jesus Christ. So this encourages us, actually, to be active, unlike fate, uh, in our decision-making for the glory of God. But then notice what happens with Jonah. Jonah's no puppet in this story, we read that he goes to Tarshish. Is that a, is that a, graph, a, a grammatical mistake? Um, is, is that a typo? I mean, God just called Jonah to go to Nineveh. God's sovereign. He's provident over all things. And then where does Jonah go? <laughs> if Nineveh is here, he's going this way. He's going in the opposite direction. What we actually see is Jonah's agency. He's using his freedom here to actually resist the overt call of God to go uh, to Nineveh. And, and this teaches us a, a second thing. So Calvin used to describe how is it that our decisions are free and yet God is still sovereign. And he described as kind of like two uh, parallel lines. We might think of as two tracks of a, a railroad track. And where, whatever way that railroad track goes, whatever curves and twists and turns, the, that on the one side is God's sovereignty, the other is his free choices that humans make. They're running in the same direction. But here's a story where God's, you know, um, uh, uh, decreed intent is not working in the same direction with the prophet's volition, his, his will. So what does God do? Well, here we learn a second lesson. God's sovereignty and human freedom are not quite equal. God redirects the prophet. 
the prophet goes on a detour, and God sends a mighty, well, first a mighty storm, and then a great fish um, to redirect the prophet in the direction he is to go. But even as you see the the story unfold, you see God is constantly, he's working with Jonah as a, a person who is in the image of God, who has intelligence, who can be instructed, who can be persuaded. And so you see God demonstrating and and advocating and persuading Jonah of why it is good for him to show compassion on these Ninevites. Everywhere, Jonah is treated as a person with agency. When we talk about these things of the sovereignty of God and and providence, we have to, there are these kind of guardrails, (laughs) And if, if, you, if, if your view of providence leads you to a view of fate and passivity, like it doesn't matter what I decide, you have misunderstood the biblical teaching on this. Well, let's look at um, another example. This case, Judas. This is um, Luke chapter 22, verses 21 and 22. So Jesus is at the Last Supper, and he makes this really um, amazing proclamation. This is what Jesus declares. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. He's referring to Judas. And then get this. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. That is, he's predicting he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to be arrested, that he's going to suffer and die. The Son of Man goes as it has been what? Determined. This is all under the sovereign purview of God. But, he goes on to say, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now, wait a second. We have these two truths that seem to be contradictory towards one another. On the one hand, Jesus is going to go just as God has decreed, just as he's ordained, just as he's been leading up from the very call to Abraham through all, you know, his descendants and the kings and and through Joseph and Mary and being called to Bethlehem, all these events have all been superintended by the sovereign um, hand of God. It has to happen this way. God is God. And yet, Jesus is very clear that Judas is still responsible for his choices, for his actions. So this flows out of the idea that we have agency. And flowing out of that idea is we can't say, oh, you know, Lord, you made me do it. <laughs> the devil made me do it. The world made me do it. My parents, you know, it's the genes. We can't say that we are responsible, you see, for our actions. These are two truths that, that are, serve as kind of guardrails uh, for how we understand the providence of God. And they're really critical that you understand um, these things. Now we come to the second question that arises in connection with God's providence. If all things are working for the good, does this all things include the worst, most evil aspects, the the evil and tragic um, uh, uh, events and injustices within the world? Amos 3.6. I'm just going to begin here with uh, the prophet Amos. Um, and, and in chapter 3, verse 6, um, he, he writes this, uh, and he's writing because um, God is uh, threatening the Israelites with judgment. 
But he asked this question, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Why would you blow a trumpet? Well, the, 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 the watchmen on the walls, they see uh, an enemy advancing. They blow the trumpet. They alert the people. It's red alert, okay? That's what the trumpet means here. But then the prophet asks a secondary question flowing out of it. Does evil befall a city unless the Lord has done it? Okay? Does evil befall a city unless the Lord has done it? Now, in this case, I think he's just referring to disaster. The the evil can refer not necessarily to moral wickedness, but just to also natural disasters. So this is a broad term. And this is a rhetorical question from the prophet. The answer is, uh, no, um, a disaster and evil will not befall a city unless the Lord has done this whether it's an enemy attack, a natural disaster, or a coronavirus pandemic, Amos is telling us this is not merely bad luck. We just happen to draw the short straw. No, we need to take note. So part of the, 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 the implications of this is that we need to take note that God is in all of these things, that God is at work, and that there may be things that he wants us to learn from whatever befalls us. The story of Joseph in the Old Testament provides us with a glimpse of God's incorporating evil decisions into his sovereign purposes for good. When Joseph's father Jacob dies, his brothers are now very concerned. Why? (laughs) Well, they're worried that now Joseph's going to seize this as an opportunity to get even. For what? for selling their brother, betraying their brother, um, and selling him into Egyptian slavery, okay? So this is, uh, they're worried, and, and they have good reason. Um, they, because they know their consciences are at work, and they know they've done evil, um, and they deserve some uh, kind of retribution. But then Joseph becomes aware of this, and he responds with these words in Genesis 50. As for you, his brothers... You meant evil against me, okay? They, they were operating freely as far as they were concerned out of jealousy and hatred for their brother. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What, what Genesis and Joseph is teaching us and showing us is that even the evil actions, the injustices that are perpetrated on one another, that even these are not outside of the purview of God's sovereignty, that he is nevertheless in these events. But another guardrail, the Lord is always righteous, okay? The Lord is not the author of evil. Now, you're going to say to me, you're not connecting the dots for me. You're stating things that from any normal, logical way of thinking are contradictory. I am simply describing to you what the Bible is teaching. There are certain things that the Bible teaches that don't make complete sense to us, that we do not have a good explanation for. This is one of those those, um, uh, truths. And our job is to receive what the Bible declares to us by faith, recognizing, you know, okay, another truth, the Trinity— God is one God, but three persons. When you really begin to press this, it's hard not to come up with three gods or to deny that 
the, the person of the Spirit and the person of Christ are truly equal to the Father. That This is a, one of those teachings that just, it messes with our minds. And we trust that one day we will understand. That we will, perhaps, that, you know, um, it may be just that our brains, our, our created brains, are just not sufficient to understand certain things that are true about an almighty, omniscient, omnipresent God. And this is one of those. But we're, our task is to see where the Bible leads us and to, um, uh, to, to accept and receive it. And this leads us then to the example of Job. Job's an example of how even the worst evil, the kind of evil that takes everything he has, all of his massive holdings, all of his property, his seven sons, his three daughters, whom he prayed for early every morning, how he loses even his physical well-being as he sits with these painful sores and dust and ashes. And interestingly, in this case of Job, his wife is left alive. And in Job, chapter 2, she, she appears to Job after he befalls all of these amazing tragedies. We read in uh, verse 9, Do you still, talking to Job, hold fast to your integrity, curse God and die? That's her, that's her advice. Verse 10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Now this is, this is powerful. This is really, we're, we're, we're going uh, into the depths of theological truth. What Job is saying is, yes, we receive the good and we praise and we, we thank the Lord. And, and truly, the good is from the Lord. But what he's saying here, it's not just the good, but the evil also is part of God's plan. Now, we know from the story things that Job doesn't know. We know that actually it wasn't God directly who inflicted these things upon him. It was Satan who spurs up enemies to inflict it and, and these natural disasters that inflict the damage upon Job and, and his family. Is Job wrong then in attributing the, the, the disaster and the evil and suffering that befalls him? Is he wrong in attributing it to God? Well, the passage actually continues with his editorial comment. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What the author is saying here, the inspired author is saying, is that when Job attributes this ultimately to the hand of God, he's not wrong. That somehow God is over even the tragedy, the evil that befalls um, him. And this is not where the story ends, because this naturally leads to the, another great question. Why? If you're Job, you're, why is this happening to me? Why does God allow evil and disappointments and tragedy and painful losses to enter our lives? Such a key theme to this whole book. Job has first three friends, and then another friend shows up, and all of them are trying to convince Job that the reason for this evil is because Job's done something that nobody knows about, and he needs to come clean. That's, that's basically, that's one of the prominent uh, themes of, of his, what his friends are telling him. And Job just, he, he, 
in his suffering, it just makes it worse because he knows that as far as, as is humanly possible, Job has been righteous. And, and, and the, Job begins with the statement that he was a supremely blameless man in the earth. So why does God allow this? And as part of Job's response to his misery, he can't help but cry out with a complaint that God has done this. In chapter 19, verses 6 and 7, Job declares, Know then that God has put me in the wrong. So now it's more than, okay, yeah, God's in this, to God is unjust in this. He's done me wrong. He has closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out, violence, but I am not answered. I will call for help, but there is no justice. Okay, you can, under, you can understand where Job's coming from here. At this point, he's lashing out. At this point, he's complaining. And he's, he's coming really close to accusing, charging God with, with evil here, if he's not actually doing so. And then ultimately where this leads is to chapter after chapter after chapter of a response from God, um, beginning in um, uh, Job 38. I just have to give you just a a taste of what God says here. It says that the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. So there's this kind of this sense of, of transcendent power. Who is this that darkens counsel with respect to Job now? By words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who has its, who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with the doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling uh, band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. This goes on for four chapters. I read just the very first section of chapter 38. And by the end of this, Job begins to see. Now, as you read through these questions, it's interesting because nowhere in this response from God does God tell Job why. Job never learns this as far as we know. What God seems to be saying to Job at this point is something along the lines of this. Job, I am in control of all things. I'm working all things according to my good wisdom and purposes. This has happened for a reason, and I know what that reason is, and that has to be enough for you. Okay, I know, there, I know the reason, and there is a reason. But one day, when it's revealed to you, you will give glory to my incomprehensible wisdom and power. That's essentially the message that God is giving to Job. And if that message is enough for Job, it has to be enough for us as well. Job seems to get this. I'll read um, part of his response. This is Job 42. I know, Job says, that you can do all things 
and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I'm skipping part of this. Therefore, I have uttered that I, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What was enough for Job has to be enough for us. Now, let me just provide three brief takeaway points. I can't really expand on these, but number one, if we understand what God teaches, that he's working all things for our good, well, this means, number one, that we should love the truth of God's providence. God has revealed to us this glorious truth that we could not discern or derive from our circumstances. We, we couldn't understand this by our experience of life in a fallen world. The only way we know about this truth is because God has revealed it to us. And this truth tells us that a covenant God out of supreme love is constantly at work for the good of his people. We should love this truth. Number two, providence should encourage us then to trust and to persevere in times of trial and affliction. One Puritan author, Thomas Watson, he writes this, God enriches by impoverishing. He causes the augmentation of grace by the diminution of an estate. God works strangely. He brings order out of confusion, harmony out of discord. He frequently makes the works of unjust men to do that which is just. Either the wicked shall not do the hurt that they intend, or they shall do the good which they do not intend. God often helps when there is least hope, and he saves his people in that way which they think will destroy. This is the comfort that we have to keep going, that God is in it. We may not understand the why, but there is a why. And then maybe there is someone listening to this who has not yet firmly placed their faith in Jesus Christ as God's provision for their forgiveness and salvation. And this truth should be another encouragement to the non-Christians to seriously consider the claims of Jesus Christ. Well, what, what do I mean? If you understand the blessing of this truth, you have to also understand that the blessings of this promise are made specifically, not to everyone universally, but specifically to the people of God. This is a promise for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who love God. No man or woman who comes to know Christ as their Savior and Lord is ultimately hurting themselves if this promise is true. By faith, a person suddenly comes under the umbrella and protection of this great promise. We don't know how long it will take to experience the good that is promised in Romans 8.28. But we can trust that this promise, when it comes to fruition, it will be spectacular. 
When it comes to fruition, it will be lasting and abiding, and it will make all things, whatever suffering we endure, it will make it worth, worth, worth it. I need to close there. Would you bow your heads with me? Grant, Almighty God, that you have chosen us as your unique treasure and to consecrate us to yourself in the person of your only begotten Son. Grant that we may so follow holiness through the whole course of our life, that your glory may shine forth in all our deeds. Lord, may we never undertake anything except for this end, that your name may be more and more glorified. And may we know the assurance of having been called by the Spirit. May we be encouraged to go forth during the remainder of our days until we shall, at the appointed time, reach that glory which has been secured for us by the blood of the firstborn Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.